Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, almost 600 episodes and counting, they are all available for free. It's a free show. It's a listener-supported show. If you would like to support this podcast, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I, I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. Maybe. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know? It's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, hey, hey. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm here in Los Angeles. I have T. Kira Madden on the program today. She published a memoir earlier this year. It is called Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls. It's available now from Bloomsbury. It was the official March pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Her interview is dropping a bit late just due to scheduling. I wanted to catch her in person when she came through town on tour, and this is just the way the dates fell. So the good news is she was here. We had a great, we had a great talk. She's been on a big tour you might have heard of her. You might have heard of this book. It's been getting a lot of attention. It's one of the buzzier titles of the season. Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls. T. Kira Madden, you're going to hear that in just a second. If I sound, if you can hear it in my voice, if I sound a little like harried, it's been a busy day. Today, Wednesday, April 17th, is my wife's birthday. So as I record this, I was just downtown. I had to get her a birthday present. I'm like interrogating my daughter, trying to figure out what her mother wants. My wife will never tell me, you know, but she tells my daughter, <laughs> I figure this out. So there are these earrings, they're like bar earrings, which I, you know, I know nothing about jewelry, 
but there are these bar earrings that my wife wanted. And so then I'm like texting her friends to like figure out what, what are bar earrings? What kind of bar earrings are we talking like rose gold, white gold, yellow gold, diamonds, no diamonds. What do we do? Stressful. So then, uh, you know, I was sent to this place downtown that a friend of mine who knows about such things was like, you got to go to this place. And, uh, you know, I sold my car, so I had to ride my bike to the train station. Then I'm on the train, then I'm riding my bike around downtown, kind of sweaty. I'm wearing, I'm wearing sweatpants, <laughs> got a backpack on and I'm in this uh, jewelry store. This woman is trying to help me. stressful, but, uh, I succeeded. I got some bar earrings. I have them right here. Hopefully they're the right kind. If they're not, you know, she can exchange them. That's just the way it goes. But I have acquired the bar earrings and I believe that they are, uh, I think they're nice. They got diamonds on them. Apparently yellow gold is in. That's what I was told. And I don't want to sound like ostentatious. This didn't cost like an arm and a leg. It's a nice gift, but it's not like something extravagant, like out of the, it's a very normal gift for uh, a man in his forties to get his wife for her birthday. I think anyway, that's what I did today. And then I, uh, I'm racing back. I have to do this recording and then I have to interview somebody else right after this. And I'm, I have to try to like read an entire novel <laughs> somewhere in there. We'll see. It's the way it goes. Uh, so let's get to it, shall we? T. Kira Madden is my guest. Her memoir, Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls, is out there now from Bloomsbury. It is uh, a painful story. It is a uh, moving story. It's a story of survival and uh, family love that transcends like all kinds of difficulties. It's, you know, it's a lot more than that. And I'm probably doing a bad job of uh, paraphrasing it, but I really enjoyed it, and uh, I had such a nice time meeting T. Kira Madden and uh, hearing more from her. So here's the conversation. This is T. Kira Madden, and her book, One More Time, is called Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls. It's a coming-of-age memoir growing up in Boca Raton, Florida, in a very privileged Jewish community as a biracial queer girl. Um, with lots of family secrets, uh, two addict parents, and kind of a famous family as well. Okay, and I feel like the fame aspect of the story was like the, there were those. That's where I have the most questions. Mm -hmm. So there was like this connection to Jordan Belfort and the mm -hmm. Wolf of Wall Street stuff. Like, what was that? So my father and my uncle both worked with Jordan Belfort. Um, the Wolf of Wall Street story that we've now seen. Um, Played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Yes. <laughs> My I love, favorite. I love that movie. Full circle. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, it was important for me not to focus on that story so much and not to focus on, you know, the name Steve Madden never appears in the book. And that was important to me because I, it could so easily become a book about that marketed in that way. And it's so not about that. Um, I tried to only bring the crime in or the criminal activity and the names when it served my story and the story of my family, because there needed to be an explanation for well, it's, it's, it's its own big it's story its own thing. It's been covered. Um, and Steve wasn't, 
wasn't a huge part of my story, the story I was trying to tell. My father's absence because of what happened was a part of the story, and that's when I addressed it. But other than that, it was important for me to keep that separate. But your dad, like for the record, your dad did not, he was not implicated in that? No. Okay. Okay. I mean, just, I, that was a, I was a curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, reading the story, um, like digesting all that happened to you as a child and all that you were exposed to at such a young age and uh, the dramas that you went through with respect to family secrets, like it's quite a lot. And mm -hmm. yet here you are like a productive member of society writing books like but you know, but I shouldn't say that it's that unlikely because there's a lot of love in your family too. It's not mm -hmm. like, like, why don't, why don't you talk a little bit about the dynamics? Because it is sort of unique. Like you had addict, uh, you know, addict parents who were struggling with substance abuse and who were often absent, but yet it, it doesn't strike me that you were, that you ever really doubted whether or not they loved you or did you, is that a misreading? I, n I never doubted it. No, I always felt that love from them. Um, and sometimes looking back, I wonder why that is, but I think that is often an impulse of children. Like we want that love so badly and we look for it and we want to receive it. And I wanted it so badly that I, that I did. I found love in everything that they did. Even the collected dates with my father is the name of an essay in the book. And some of those dates are wonderful and some of them are, are pretty awful. Like my father leaving me at a baseball game when I was a kid or taking me to a bar and I, you know, chugged his drink. Um, those aren't typical father-daughter dates. But in my eyes, what I wanted to get across in that essay was that those were some of the best memories I had with him. That Because it was just us. Because we were spending time together. And I don't think I was with the exception of maybe one of those dates, I don't think I was aware that that he was doing a bad thing or the wrong thing. It was just that we were spending time together in a way that was the way my father liked to spend time, which is at a bar right. <laughs> or passed out. Yeah. So, and your, your father struggled with alcohol. Mm -hmm. That was, but it was, was it other things too? Alcohol and drugs. Mm -hmm. Alcohol and drugs. And your mother as well? My mother, only drugs. Only drugs. Yeah, she was never an alcoholic. And you had an unusual, as a result, you had like an unusual amount of autonomy mm -hmm. for a young person. Uh, I have a friend who had like a similar level of autonomy, but for different reasons. And he came out very well adjusted. I think about that sometimes when it comes to like helicopter parenting and people who have parents who are like super involved in every aspect of their lives and kind of never let them out of their sight and maybe coddle them a little bit too much. Like, do you ever look back on your childhood with gratitude for the ways in which it had to make you maybe more self-sufficient than most or for the ways in which it might have toughened you? I do. Um, I think it's taken me a really long time. I'm 30 years old now, but I'm finally at the place where I can say, oh, I'm a really strong person. I've been through a lot. I've been through more than most people have. Um, and at, at a very young age. And because I'm a very fear-based person, uh, the author Lydia Yukonovich says people, especially kids in troubled families, are often rage-based or fear-based. And I always thought that was really interesting. 
And I was definitely a fear-based person then, and I still am. I'm very skittish. I'm afraid of everything. I'm shy. Um, you afraid of this podcast? I'm afraid of public speaking. You are? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm very shy. And so because of that, I think there's this false idea that if, if one is shy or more reserved or skittish, then, then one is not strong or brave or courageous. And that's not true. And it, it took me a long time to realize that, oh, I can be reserved and I can actually value those attributes of myself that I'm careful and I'm always paying attention and a little paranoid. But that's actually a gift. I'm not reckless with my life. And also emotionally, I'm, I'm very strong. I've, I've been through a lot. Um, yeah. And I don't think anything really could shake me at this point. It's like you've seen it. You've seen, so I, I kind of yeah. feel that too. I mean, like there, you go through really difficult stuff and eventually all of us will mm -hmm. one way or another, you know, uh, and it sucks to go through it, but I guess you have a choice to make. You can either, it either defeats you or it makes you stronger, right? Mm -hmm. There's a peacefulness to it. I think. Well, you don't have to anticipate it anymore. Yeah. It's like, I've said, okay, so really bad shit has touched me now. I know what it feels like to go through that. Like, let's get on with it at some point. Yeah. <laughs> right? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, I got to say that the depictions of adolescence and in particular female adolescence were really harrowing for me. I'm so my daughter's eight and I'm sort of like my wife and I like talk about it. We're like, okay, she's still a little girl now, you know, but it comes quickly. Like the next three years, things will start to change. She'll get into junior high. And, uh, it was just like, for me, you know, I like, I was feeling it. I'm like a guy reading your story and it was really palpable to me. And I'm wondering, uh, about your memory, because whenever I read a really vivid, well-rendered memoir, I'm always fascinated by the level of detail and the recall. Like, did you have to work at that? Do you have like extensive diaries from your youth? Do you have like, what did, what, what materials did you go through? And then how much of it was just like locked away in your brain? I did have extensive diaries and journals. But I wouldn't say that was my number one source because I realized going through them that I actually lied in my diary and journals a lot. <laughs> and I think if we're honest with ourselves when we go through them, we, we see that a lot. Like either we are idealizing a situation or writing a more fantastic version of a situation, 
Or in some cases with my journals, I would just be afraid that somebody would read them. My parents would find them or a friend would find them. So I would disguise people. I would make certain situations lighter than they actually were or more sarcastic. So I lied all the time and it, it was a different version of reality. And even at this point in my life, I can read them and say, that day didn't go that way. I know that. I know that didn't happen. But you have the memory to know. Mm -hmm. I do. So I'm I'm blessed and <laughs> cursed with having a very sharp memory, um, specifically around that time in my life. And I think that's because I was constantly in this flight or fight mode, um, in this fear-based place. So I think I was just really hyper alert and hyper aware. And I remember that period of my life more than I remember anything now. At it makes, years it makes sense to me though. Cause you were like, yeah. on, like you say, you're on alert, mm -hmm. you're taking everything in mm -hmm. and you're probably in some, cause the thing about it too, is that there's an innocence to being a child where you don't necessarily have the vocabulary for what you're going through. You can't name addiction necessarily. Sure, it's sure. not, it's not communicated to you. Mm -hmm. Um, it's not made explicit. You also don't necessarily have a name for the psychological stuff that's going on. Mm -hmm. Uh, and yet there it is and it's manifesting. Um, and I think there's, there's gotta be kind of like a survival instinct that's kicking in. Yes. Like I got to take care of this. Um, and I also know just from having read, you know, a little bit about this stuff in books and articles and so on that typically in families where addiction plays a role, um, with a parent, there's like, and, and if there's, especially if there's multiple children, there's usually a child who's like the hero child or somebody who's trying to like make things better. I kind of got that sense. Like the, you, you had some of that in you, right? I think so. Like yeah. a fixer or like somebody wanting like to please. Yeah. But, but at the same time, I guess once you hit adolescence, you were also sort of wild. Yeah. I recently took the, uh, Enneagram test. Have you heard of this, the personality test? And you do a million questions. And I got the helper. And it said something on there that whether you take the test when you're a kid or now or later, you'll always essentially have the top, the same top three. And I thought that was really interesting that I was the helper then. I'm where, the helper where, now. Where can I take this test? The Enneagram Institute online. Is it Really free? chillingly accurate. There's a free version and I took the $12 version oh. because I was really interested. Um, but I, I still feel like that person. I think I was just always the helper. I, I definitely felt I had to parent my parents and that's just the way it was. I didn't, I didn't know that terminology when I was younger. I didn't understand that that's what we were doing. I thought we were all kind of equals. We were all kind of kids in this way, yeah. even though they were older. And I like what you say about vocabulary because there's a part of the book where I, I describe my father as sleepy boy and my mother as sleepy girl. That was my vocabulary at that time in my life of describing them high because I didn't know the word high. I didn't know stoned or drugged. Um, but when my parents were slower and kind of tired or, or dragging their voices, they were a sleepy boy and sleepy girl. And if they were high, I would also say they went to the other place. That was my term for it. And those are the terms my childhood kind of mind, the way I wrangled that. But I think it's interesting that it's boy and girl, not sleepy man. <laughs> well, when you're super high, like as an adult, you know, you kind of mm -hmm. do turn into like a, there's something childlike about the way you behave. Absolutely. Yeah. So it makes sense. Yeah. But that like, was part of my kind of parenting of them. 
did you have like i don't i mean forgive me if i'm misremembering but like you didn't have like a nanny or like an, another like adult in the house with you on like a full-time basis did you like, no it was just your parents like trying to pull this off while using a mm -hmm. lot of the time yeah at some point i had it was a chapter that was cut from the book i had my jockey trainer moved in with us who was also a recovering drug addict and it, it didn't go well <laughs> <laughs> it's a high jockey in the kitchen just yes. like hanging. <laughs> <laughs> he's a great guy if you're listening frank i love you <laughs> so but you grew up like riding horses and what is the what does boca raton mean it means the rat's mouth the rat's mouth you know i, I should have put that together mm -hmm. that was the original title of the book was it mm -hmm. and your and your uh marketing department at bloomsbury was like, like actually nope. <laughs> <laughs> um but you grew up it, like Boca Raton is like notoriously like affluent. I want to say I just had, what was it? Brittany Ackerman mm -hmm. in here. Do you know her? We went to the same school. Did you really? We did. Fun so, fact. <laughs> so yeah, it's just like total coincidence, but I've yeah. had like two memoirists who grew up in uh, affluent Boca Raton and mm -hmm. wrote memoirs about it. There's some overlap in terms of your experiences. Like there's yeah. some, some resonances, not, not the same, but kind of the same uh, context. Did you, did you guys know each other growing up? We did. Did you really? Yeah, we grew up and went to the same school. <laughs> Is there a rivalry like now between you guys? With no, Memoir? we're doing an event together next week, okay. actually. Look at that. I, I love her work. I published a, an essay of hers in No Tokens, my literary magazine. Interesting. And what's yeah. interesting, too, is that she also had like a New York thing happening. There's like a... There's a mm -hmm. link between, is that, is that common where New York people will have a Boca Raton home? And, yes. Yeah. Yes. It's like Palm Beach kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Boca Raton, Long Island. There's a direct flight there. there is. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, okay. So the other thing, before we get to like the actual mechanics of you writing the book, I do have to like, raise a flag and take issue with the uses of the names Brad and Chad. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I know that I'm, I'm imagining that those were, uh, pseudonyms, pseudonyms. Yes. and I was like, Oh my fucking God, here we go again. Brad <laughs> is like the, is it the date? He's like the drug dealer or the, he is. okay. And then Chad's mm -hmm. like the date rapey asshole. Yes. They're both bad guys. Yes, they so, are. So it's like Brad and Chad just taking a beating. Those <laughs> names. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Next time I'll be more creative. At some point we've <laughs> got to just say, you know what? We've had our turn with these names. Let's move on to like Eric and Steve. And those will be the bad guy names. Um, but I do, I bitch on this show all the time that my name has become like a cultural pejorative. You know, it's, oh. it's just like a signifier. At least yeah. you're not Becky. Well, is Becky bad? Becky with the hair. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So there's girl versions but too. But I, I know lovely Becky's, lovely Brad's and, and even lovelier chats. <laughs> I was talking to a friend of mine last night who works in, uh, like marketing and branding and like, you know, business, uh, in his business life. And like, it just occurred to me that like having the name Brad fucks with my professional life like people <laughs> let's make this about me for a minute like it's like bad branding it's like bad human branding to be like oh i'm brad immediately people are like oh like <laughs> maybe i should maybe i shouldn't hang out with this guy I, i'm probably overthinking it a bit but i think there's some truth to that see and you have a cool name it's like but nobody it, can get it right well that's so. the, but, but see I, I i guess it gets old to have that conversation it does yeah, it does. But it's Tikira. Tikira. What do like? What do your best friends call you? T or Kira. Um, that's about it. And My family calls me T or TT. Okay. 
um, my closest friends, T or Kira. Uh And recently, only in the past year, I've been using T Kira. Okay. And so I was a kid, you meet somebody like me. It's, uh, you want me to call you the T Kira. Mm -hmm. Okay. And because even if, even if we did become best friends today, talking every day, I would still like it because I had to think about, I recently thought like, why, why did I change it to Kira? When did that happen? And when I was thinking about it, I realized it was just to make it easier for other people. It wasn't because I didn't like my name. It was just that people would screw it up so much or they would make fun of me. Right. So I started using Kira, but we're in this, in this great place now where we're supposed to honor pronouns and names. And I, I certainly do. And that's important to me. So I thought, why, why should I make my name easier for someone when, when I have no problem, names aren't that hard. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's the letter T. Yeah. So and, it's, it's important to and, me now. And I don't want to spoil anything, um, because you get out, you go over this in the book, but for people listening, like your name, it's just the letter T Kira mm-hmm. Madden, no abbreviation, <laughs> no abbreviation. So you got to read the book to find out like what the origin story is for T. Um, and then you're, uh, mixed race and the it's Hawaii. China. Hawaiian, Chinese, and kind of Eastern European Jew. An Eastern European Jew. Mm-hmm. Um, and like culturally, do you identify like predominantly with one? Do you feel like, like I'm Jewish or I'm Hawaiian? You know, do you have one that you feel like predominates? Yeah. I feel like I'm all of those things. I think I, I'm most connected to my Hawaiian heritage because I grew up spending a lot of time in Hawaii. I... I have never been to China still. I grew up with that language more so in my family, with the food, with... Um, with the Hawaiian language. With the Hawaiian language, yes. With the dancing, the culture. So I I definitely feel the most connected to that. Yeah, I feel that way. Like, I'm mm-hmm. a big mutt, but, like, I feel, like, most connected to my Italian roots. Mm-hmm. Just because mm-hmm. my grandparents, my grandfather, who was Sicilian, and, and my last name is Sicilian... Like he gave a shit about being Italian. Yeah. Whereas like my other grandparents, it was like, oh, we're Scots Irish. You know what I'm saying? It just wasn't as big of a deal. So was that the case for you where like you're the Hawaiian part of your family maybe celebrated their heritage the most? And so it rubbed off. Definitely. It's also really rare to be native Hawaiian. So it's, it's pretty cool to actually own that. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's really strange on, on the mainland. Some people think like educated people think that if you live in Hawaii, you're Hawaiian. And I have to say, no, no, that actually doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know. Um, but it, it's crazy how people actually don't know that it's its own kind of race and people have Hawaiian themed parties and it's just these kind of caricatures. And I have to say, hey, that's actually not really appropriate for X, Y, and Z reasons. We wouldn't do that for somebody else. And they say, oh, it, it's a thing to actually be Hawaiian. We thought it was just people who live on the beach and eat spam. Um, but it happens a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've been to Hawaii uh, two or three times and it's beautiful. Like, I don't get me wrong. Like, I love to be there, but there is the feeling of there's some sort of feeling of like depression around the colonial aspect of it when you're there where you just mm-hmm. feel like, you know, you just, you can, you can see it yes, and you can feel it. And, um, you know, there's still enough of the culture there to, to where you can, um, experience some of the magic, but a lot has been lost. Mm-hmm. 
you know? So I, I appreciated the parts of your book where you're talking about like Hawaiian, uh, native spiritual traditions Mm -hmm. and, um, I don't know, other aspects of the culture that like, I just wasn't aware of, but you grew up with this stuff. Mm -hmm. It was passed down. And did did you have to do research to like brush up on this stuff or is this just part of your, your I did, to be honest, I did because the, the Hawaiian mythology is, it's really complicated and there are so many different versions of so many different stories and so many characters. Yeah. I was like, wow, she's got a real handle on this. I have my books of mythology and I also had to talk to family members and then even have another person outside my family, um, who is now teaching at the university of Hawaii, um, go through and make sure that my mythology kind of checked out. But in our discussions, we also talked about how, you know, there are certain versions that happen during certain years and then the story kind of changed and shifted. So trying to honor, you know, one story doesn't cover all of them, but it was, it was really complicated and to you, try to get those pieces together. You, well, yeah. And, and it's also like, you know, it's one thing to like explain it to yourself. It's another thing to write it for the a general audience. Yes. And to try to make it feel accessible in a way, even the language, even the use of Pauhana, for example, the, my book opens with the term pow. And that was originally Palhana when my grandfather is saying the mannequin in his store has to be kicked out. He's done. So I had a certain understanding of the term Pal or Palhana. And then other people I spoke to are like, oh, that's actually just for that, for this one island. Like people on the big island say it in this way. People in Oahu say it this way. And one person might say it's your pal when you're done with a drink or food. And another person might say it in a more metaphorical way, like you're you're out of money or you're poor or, um, you're tired. And so it was interesting with the language as well and where it could be flexible and where it could not, um, so that people could understand. And also, so the people of Hawaii wouldn't say like, Oh, you're a phony. Right. sucks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you're from Oahu, like your root, your family roots are Oahu. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. So no, no other islands. Well, my grandfather was from Waipio Valley in, on the big Island. Okay. Yeah. But big, the most, Big Island's beautiful. It's so beautiful. I love it. Me too. Like that one. It's I my favorite. Me too. Me too. <laughs> I like, I'm always, cause everyone's always like Maui, Kauai. I'm like, I kind of like the Big Island. The Big Island is the weirdest. It's the weirdest. And it's like the you, weird cousin. So I, I love that one. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm glad we have that in common. And then, um, what did I want? I wanted to ask you about like, like you coming to understand your queer identity because that happened like later than one might expect or I don't know, I guess Mm -hmm. it can happen at any time, but uh, you know, it came to you a little bit later, right? Yes, definitely. Um, I, I tried to, in the book, I wanted to trace my kind of lived experience with that understanding. And I've said before that I always knew I was gay, but I didn't understand that knowing. I didn't have the context to fully understand what that meant until I came to the understanding and then looked back on certain moments of my life. And I could then see kind of the shadow traces, or I could then see the gaze that I had that I couldn't recognize without context when I was younger. So I tried to mirror that in the book. So there are moments of inquiry moments of this very specific gaze or lens, but it doesn't actually become clear until later in the book, or it's not declared in any way, because that's how I lived it. Um, I was dating a girl. I was dating a woman before 
I realized that I was dating a woman. <laughs> that made me <laughs> clear she was just this really pretty friend I was hanging out with a lot. Right. And who happened to be queer. And she was like, well, I thought you were gay. <laughs> so other people could even see this before I could. But like you didn't, it didn't strike me that you grew up in a household where this was frowned upon. Like it wasn't like a super religious household or like, not like at su all. super like anti-gay household or mm -mm. none of that stuff. So what was it you think that was preventing you from understanding it? It was just that there was lack of representation in the culture. Yeah. Representation in context. Like there was not a single out person in my school uh -huh. woman. Um, there were maybe two boys, the one girl who came out as a lesbian in my school, um, I want to protect her privacy and not get into what happened, but she had to switch schools immediately because of something that happened to her. And that was my one experience with it. And then we had one science teacher who we all agreed looked like a lesbian in our kind of middle school minds. And then we just completely destroyed her and teased her every single day. Oh my God. Yeah. And those are my examples. And I didn't understand anything outside of that in Boca Raton, Florida. Brittany Ackerman can confirm this information. I grew up in a similar kind of place. I mean, yeah. I was in Indiana, but it was this, like, I didn't really have experience without gay people until I was, to be honest, until I moved to Los Angeles, mm -hmm. like even in college in Colorado, like I, I don't recall anyone really giving a shit. I certainly never, it, I was never like bothered by it. I just didn't have experience, you mm -hmm. know? And when I was in high school, there was like one guy that I can remember, but I like to think this has changed pretty radically over the past 20 years, like not everywhere, but it seems to me like this has changed. Like kids in a lot of high schools today are at greater yeah. liberty, right? That's a good, that's like, I'm, I'm searching for something positive to hang on to in this world. <laughs> like, Oh, I certainly think so. I worked this past summer at a, in a sex store in Provincetown and I was working with, you know, 20 year olds and they just had this much deeper understanding and vocabulary and were using certain pronouns for several years. And I wasn't thinking about pronouns when I was in middle and high school. It wasn't really part of the conversation. Um, I didn't meet my first butch lesbian or self-proclaimed butch dyke until I moved to New York city. And that's when I felt the first twinkle of like, oh, what am I feeling? Right. <laughs> what is going on here? <laughs> but I had never met one before. Yeah, It just wasn't a thing in, we're in my circle of Boca Raton, Florida. Yeah. I moved to, when I first moved to Los Angeles, I, I moved into an apartment in West Hollywood, mm -hmm. not knowing that's where Boys Town was. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So I was like walking my dog around the neighborhood and I was like, wow, like everyone's so nice. <laughs> like I had no idea, like just completely clueless, but eventually figured it out. And um, it was, it was good for me, you know, it was like a good <laughs> education. It's <laughs> clueless guy. But, um, I want to talk to you about the actual writing of the book because you're dealing with a lot of painful stuff. You're dealing with childhood trauma. You're dealing with, um, identity, you know, that's I, like issues around identity and coming of age that, um, isn't necessarily easy and you're dealing with grief. It's really at its heart, uh, a grief novel and the weight of family secrets, mm -hmm. which is its own kind of trauma and difficulty. Um, like what's the saying in the recovery community, right? It's like, you're as sick as your secrets. You ever heard mm. of that? Like I, secrets are, have a big impact on a person's mental and spiritual health. If you're carrying around a difficult secret, um, that's, that's a burden to bear. 
So there's all these things that are like happening in your book. And I don't want to spoil for people because I feel like that's part of the uh, beauty of the book is the way that like things come together. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm curious about how difficult it was for you to do the actual writing. Like, did this book take you a long time? Did it, or did it come to you easily? And did it like pour out of you in some kind of like grief state or, you know what I'm saying? Like, how did it work? Sure. Um, it was very fast for me and fast for me is three and a half years, which is, you know, I've been working on my novel for seven now. So three and a half is pretty quick. I didn't take a day off for those three and a half years. I worked every day. That being said, I, I'm a really hard worker and I worked obsessively over it. What does that mean? What does that mean? You're a really hard worker. Like how many hours a day? Like, are you getting up at like dawn? It's different every day, but, um, it can mean anything from working all day from eight in the morning till midnight, or in certain cases for me, that means laboring over the same sentence for a week, um, and not making much progress, but still working through the sentence every single day. Just sitting there Mm -hmm. staring at it. Yeah. That's still work. (laughs) It's a lot of work. It counts. Yeah. I really count. I really cared about, I care still about every sentence in this book. And I hope that comes across. Um, I never want lazy sentences. I never want a sentence not to have music and surprise in it. So I really labor over every syllable and, and then working the paragraph as its own piece of art as well. So people like to ask about catharsis and therapy when I was writing this book, because it is dealing with difficult content. But for me, and I don't think this is true for everyone, but for me, the therapy and catharsis came before and after the creation of the book, that the actual creation and and the rendering and the work, it's living on a different plane when I'm working through it, when I'm actually kind of chiseling words and sentences and descriptions and building a story it's the same as I would do in a fiction story. Um, at the end of the day, sometimes when I would think about what I was writing about, then I might get sad. I might have a bad day. I might need to, you know, call my mom and talk to her. And certainly since I finished working on the book, there have been many difficult conversations and a lot of therapy <laughs> needed. I was going to say, cause you're telling some very difficult stories, not just about yourself, but about your family members. Mm-hmm. You're writing about the loss of your father. He passed away. What? Three years ago, four years, three ago? and a half, three and a half. Mm-hmm. So, um, but then also, you know, you, it's a very honest book and, and not just, like I said, not just honest about yourself. So how did you navigate those questions? Did you, did you like vet as you were going or did you just write the whole thing and then say, like, here you go. What do you think? Like, I had to make really deliberate choices about who I wanted to. There's a difference between asking for permission versus asking, what do you think? And that's something I, I learned in this process. And it wasn't until someone said to me, you know, if someone says, no, I don't give you permission, what will you do? And I had to be honest with myself and say, well, I would still write it. So it's a, it's a false ask. It's not sincere. And once I realized that, I realized I can't ask for permission if I'm going to write it anyway, with the exception of my mother and my brothers. And I decided that up front before I wrote a word, I talked to them about this project, what it might look like, how they might feel about it. And they said, you know, go for it, try. We'd love to see. They were interested in, my brothers were interested in writing about my father as well. 
And my, my mother has just been completely supportive since day one. And they all saw drafts. My mother saw drafts of essays as I was writing them. My brother saw the galley when I still had a chance to change things before the final copy. But they were the three people I really, I really cared about. My, my art was not worth, you know, tarnishing a relationship with them because I've worked so hard at my relationships with them. Yeah. As far as others, I did not ask for permission, but for most, I showed them the work and said, what do you think of this? Do you think I did right by you? Um, do you feel good about this portrayal? Did you see it differently? And we had those conversations, but I didn't say, can I do this or not? Because did, again, that's, that's false. Did anybody get pissed? Not yet. <laughs> not that you know of. <laughs> not that I know of. I have blocked some numbers. But... <laughs> I think, I think when a person, I mean, look, it does happen. I think people can, um, get their feelings hurt or they feel uncomfortable being in a book or whatever, but that's usually the exception rather than the rule. I think if a writer makes best effort to render things honestly and from the heart, I think most people, when they are exposed to that, don't tend to respond with anger. Yeah. I really did my best to render everyone, you know, of course, characters that have more space than a sentence or two, but to render everyone as fully dimensional people with both light and shadow. That's a Joanne Beard term. And yeah, I, I, I really also feel like I wrote about people whom I really love with the exception of a few people in the book. Um, people I really love and respect, even if they're no longer really in my life. Um, the One of the friends in Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls, she's no longer really a friend in my life, but I love her deeply and I value our time together. And I showed her that piece and she was very supportive, even though she's not rendered in, in the best way, because I think she could feel, she knows me, she knows my intentions, and I think she could feel that I was working really hard to, to shine a light on the beauty of that friendship, even though we can both look back and say it was very unhealthy and a bit savage. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. People come, people move through your life and, and vice versa. We move through each other's lives in different phases. Like you have these very close friendships in adolescence and usually things shift because you move, people go in different directions in their lives, whatever, you know, people grow apart, whatever it is. But for the, you know, for that period of years, the, the, like that person is like the center of your world practically. Yes. And, uh, I think in, in particular about adolescence, junior high and high school and the ways in which we behave and the ways in which we misbehave and the ways in which we, um, might hurt one another and coming to terms with that, like coming to terms with your own bad behavior, but then also your book, uh, addresses like the bad behavior of others and people like I'm thinking of the guy and forgive me if I'm blanking on his name. Is it, is it Chad or Brad? Is it who's trying Which to make one trying to make amends with you? Chad, Chad, mm -hmm. that part resonated with me. Um, not in a one for one way, but just on the level of looking back at like, you know, being an idiot and adolescent guy, not knowing what he's doing, probably being drunk um, trying to make out with girls, you know, like just not handling it, uh, like a gentleman mm -hmm. and being a fool. And I feel, and I've talked about this on this show before, I still feel guilt mm -hmm. about being a, a dipshit in like when I was like 15, like what's the statute of limitations on that stuff? 
And I, you know, with this guy that we should say the issue that's, you know, um, that you're writing about with Chet is much more severe. Yes. And Uh, not resolved (laughs) and not resolved. But, um, yeah, I guess I want to ask you about that. Like, do you, you, you don't have a, a, a full handle on it. Like you, you don't have, you don't know exactly how you feel about, not about what happened, but about where things stand now and like how to feel about somebody coming to you and saying, sorry. Yeah, I think, I think I'm a really, I'm a really forgiving person and I think I may have forgiven him if his apology seems sincere, but things escalated so quickly from that conversation. And, you know, I've said this before as well, that I think the story everyone wants to hear from me or the answer everyone wants is like, it was totally worth it to write that essay and to talk to him because I wrote this essay and I've reached so many people in this really important me too time. All of those things are true. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, that situation that essay um, became something incredibly dangerous and awful and is now a very public uh, federal case and it's it's not worth it (laughs) i wish i could take it back and just wait wait what's a public federal case um the chad character stalked me after the piece came out and was indicted for stalking oh shit yeah um so it, it wasn't worth it for the safety of not only my own safety, but the people around me for my mother, my partner, my friends. Um, you know, I had to kind of live off the grid for a long time during this. Damn. So that's, it's an interesting question. You know, what art is worth it and is it worth it in the end? Maybe I'll have a different answer a month from now or a year from now, but right now I kind of regret ever opening up that conversation, um, that plea for an apology, because it wasn't sincere. He was saying, I want to apologize. And in the next breath saying, are you single? Can I see pictures of you? So he's not my favorite person. Yeah. Well, an (laughs) apology, I didn't realize that. So, oh, that's okay. That's not something I talk about much. So yeah, that's okay. Yeah. I think like, uh, I think I was thinking more in the term in terms of, um, I guess maybe more typical adolescent idiocy, which by the way, I feel like is shifting. I was just reading an article maybe yesterday about how, um, millennials aren't drinking as much and generation Z like binge drinking is changing. And if I feel like maybe they're all on the jewel, that's what is that? <laughs> they all have their jewel pens. They're, they're little USBs. They're smoking of the flavors, but that's just like vaping, right? Is it drugs? I think it can be drugs. Oh, you'll probably have users who will all correct me. I think you can get high with them too. But, but- I, even even so, <laughs> like let's just parse this for a second because I think it matters. Like there's something um, not so great about like really hormonal teenage kids and like way too much alcohol, mm-hmm. and, or even like college students or adults. Sure. You know, like people get really fucked up. You just do stupid things, mm-hmm. you know, you lose control of your inhibitions. And I was sort of heartened. I was like, oh, maybe like as humans were evolving and things are getting better. Like now people are just taking pills, <laughs> <laughs> but at least like in those situations, maybe it's not quite so, I don't know. I don't know. It's not great, but maybe it doesn't lead to quite as much reckless behavior in that way. Maybe it's different kinds of reckless behavior. 
Maybe. People are still trying to numb themselves out to pain. Yeah. They just don't want to deal. Yeah. Do I think you, you're right. Where, where are you? Because this is something that was a little bit unclear to me. Like, it seems like the, uh, like the addiction, did that touch you or did you, did it skip you? <laughs> I think that will always be a question that I wrestle with. I think it's always a fear. Is it currently a concern of mine? No, but I think it will always be a fear and I will never say never. Like I always have to be so aware and present and conscious with, with my habits, with my drinking, with in the book, I, I get into smoking. I no longer smoke, but I still drink, but I always have that kind of sneaking suspicion when I'm drinking too much or I'm too sad. And I go to that of like, Oh, this is in me. This it's here. <laughs> um, and I have to be careful about that. Um, if that answers your question. Yeah. I mean, no, it's like, but I kind of think, you know, it's one of those things. It's like the, it's like a, an allergy. Yeah. Like you can, you can socially drink and it doesn't usually go really badly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's probably a sign that yeah. you're not like, like super allergic. Like I just have friends where it's like after the third drink, you just see like this like thousand yard stare and it's just, it's just bad. You know? Sure. Yeah. Um, I don't identify as an addict if that's the question, but I, I will never say that it will never be a problem. Yeah. I have to be aware always. That seems like a wise position considering yeah. family history. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I mean, I don't have addiction in my family, but I still like, sometimes I'll be like, you know, just having a shitty week or I'm overtired or I'm stressed. And I'll be like, God, I just want to fucking drink, mm -hmm. which is like s somewhat normal. But I'm also like, why this? Like, why can't I just like, yeah. Go for like a run or something, mm -hmm. you know, like do something that's not me just having a drink. So I'm, I'm, yeah. I feel a certain like consciousness of that as well. And it's like wanting to, I don't want to be that, that, that dad who's like having the drink to like take the mm -hmm. edge off. Sure. <laughs> I don't uh, want to be that writer either. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's too simple. <laughs> it's too simple. I mean like every once in a while, fine, but like, I don't want to be like an everyday drinker. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. Um, so, okay. So. You wrote this quickly in three and a half years. You talked it over with your mom and your brothers. Um, the public reception, like when the book was actually going to move, like make its way out into the world and to have your life and your, um, like some of the most private parts of your childhood basically out for public consumption. Like what has that been like for you? Like, like reading reviews, meeting readers, getting, I'm sure emails and people tweeting at you and whatever, like, mm -hmm. how's that gone? It's really, it's a mixed experience for me. I write, I write for dialogue. I don't write for myself. I write to communicate as a way of reaching out to people in a way that I don't feel capable of all on my own because I am shy. And with this book, it's, I'm trying to say, you know, here's what I have to say about X, Y, and Z topics about this story in hopes that other people can identify with even one thread of it. If they can identify with that, that's enough for me. And it's a way that I can feel, you know, I'm in dialogue with a reader through time and space. And that's an amazing superpower. I think that's incredible. And that's how I felt growing up reading books that I was in conversation with this person who wrote something, you know, long before I was born and maybe they've been dead for a hundred years. And to be in conversation through story is 
just the greatest gift and spirituality of my life. Um, what was the question? Just like oh, you, how has it been? Yeah. Um, so <laughs> that being said, I, I want that dialogue. I want that communication. I want people to tell me their stories and the ways in which they've identified themselves and their people and their loved ones and their stories through my book. But it is complicated. You know, every night I get some pretty heavy stories. People want to tell me about their own sexual assaults, their own grief, their own experiences with addiction, losing people they love. And I'm here for that. And I want to receive it always, but I'm still trying to figure out how to balance it. It's hard. Um, I'm very introverted. I carry things with me always. Um, I've historically worked in homeless shelters and jails and prisons teaching. And I started going to therapy when I was uh, moved on to working in a homeless shelter. And I would just cry and cry and cry every day. I said, I don't know why I'm so depressed, why I'm having all these really dark thoughts. And she said, let me get this straight. You have your history and you're working in a shelter where your students and clients, they call them, are relapsing on drugs on a daily basis, dying and <laughs> being kicked out of your class and your program in a way that you feel like you failed them. And you wonder why you're having anxiety and depression. <laughs> um, so yes, I'm attracted to those stories. I'm attracted to those people because those are the people I grew up with and the people I care most about, but I do carry it. And I think even when I can't acknowledge it, it is, and I don't use this word lightly ever, but it is triggering sure. um, to be around addiction and to be around those stories constantly. And it's my life's purpose, I believe, but it's hard. It's yeah. really hard. Yeah. And even just to be on um, every day and every night with strangers and really try to be present. Um, you know, I just want to be completely quiet when I get home each night, and watch bet. something stupid or just no sound at all. And just really valuing my friends um, because I don't have to talk about my book with my friends. Now I feel, now I feel bad. Now I feel bad for interviewing you. I'm no, <laughs> no, this is the, this is the point for me. This is, you know, finding those people, finding those readers or listeners and having these conversations. This is the whole point of me doing it. Otherwise I wouldn't, I wouldn't write. I would just be a photographer. I love mm. making pictures, but, um, the day after day is a, is a kind of unique experience. I was going to say, this is not going to last forever. Right. Like, this is the rollout. Right. And then eventually you'll go back to your, your hovel and start writing your novel again, Yeah, which I'm sure you're looking forward to. Yeah. I've had to just kind of surrender to knowing that this is unique. It will end. Um, and you got to enjoy it a little bit too. And I am. Yeah, I really am. But as far as like, I spoke to my therapist like, yesterday and I said, I, I'm not sleeping how do I sleep? What supplements can I use? And he said, you're in different time zones every day. You're staying in a different place every day. You just have to let it go. You're not going to sleep <laughs> until you get home. And it was a moment of like, okay, yeah, I just have to ride this and, and have fun yeah. when I can and, and not try to fix it. I'm always trying to fix things, um, but just have to deal with being uncomfortable sometimes and feeling heavy sometimes. And also um, just feeling the enormous value of something like this. Yeah. I like that sleep anxiety, especially when you're traveling and you have mm -hmm. like, you have like important work stuff to do Yeah, and you're like, fuck, I've been up all night and I've got to be on, yeah. and, you know, I totally get that. Um, but I want to ask you a couple things. Like I want to ask you, I guess j just since you just mentioned it, uh, first about therapy, 
which when you read your book and you come to understand all the things that you've been through and were witness to as a kid, it would be astonishing to me if you hadn't gotten to therapy, you know, or, or at least I would think that it would be a benefit, but it sounds like this is something you came to fairly recently. Mm -hmm. Like you didn't go to therapy as like a 16 year old or an 18 year old. I did. Um, I went when there's a chapter in the book where my, my mother overdoses and she goes into a treatment center. I started seeing a doctor then, and I was diagnosed with PTSD, OCD, um, all sorts of things, but they just gave me a lot of drugs. They gave me a lot of pills and this happened again and again and again. And I, it's touched on in the book, but I eventually developed a dependency on Adderall was one of those medications. And so I decided that, you know, anything related to pills actually made me more anxious because I grew up in a pill addicted family (laughs) and I have a pill phobia and then became pill dependent and it was not productive or good for me, which isn't to say it isn't for other people, but for me, it was, it was not good. So I kind of shied away from, from all sorts of therapy. I, I saw it just as something that would lead me to medication in a way that would be harmful or self-destructive until, until later, until my adult life. And I, I thought, actually, I really do need this. And there are so many different types of therapy and talk therapy. And how do you know which one to pick? I always think I'm like, I should go to therapy, but I'm like, I don't know how to find one. And it's all so expensive. No one takes insurance. It's a pain in the ass. It's so expensive. Um, one of my best friends actually found me my therapist because I felt so overwhelmed by everything you just said. And it was, I think maybe a week or two after my father died and I was really struggling with depression and grief, of course. And she did the research for me. She found someone who is a grief specialist, who is an LGBTQ specialist. She sent me a few options and I chose the person with the kindest picture (laughs) and he is best headshots and he is my angel. I love, I love him so much. And it's helped you a lot. Absolutely. He's, you know, he's on my speed dial on this tour. Yeah. And I think he's incredible. And I think all of us can benefit from therapy if we have the resources to go. What is, what do you, what do you like with a the grief therapy? Like in particular, like, you know, grieving the loss of your dad and trying to process it and come to some sort of peace with it. Like what are the kinds of things that in therapy have helped you? Hmm. My therapy is mostly about self-preservation and boundaries. And I think I learned those same things in, in my, in my fellowship program, which is Al-Anon. And it's all about just kind of loving detachment from the things that are weighing us down or making us feel bad that we can't control anyone else. We can only control our emotions. Those have been the most important things in the past few years. And it might sound separate from grief, but it's actually not because I, I tend again to take on everyone else's, uh, weight. And in this case, grief, certainly. And I think just taking care of myself and building swords around me has been really important for me to heal. You know, it's interesting because I usually, I've had a lot of people on the program who are sober, which is probably no surprise since I'm talking to writers. It's like addiction's Mm -hmm. a common thing in the writing community. Yeah. Uh, but out like people who are the children of addicts or the spouses of addicts, you know, the people who, um, have close family who are struggling with addiction, 
that is not something that I've talked too much about on the show. And it comes with its own set of like, what's the word? I don't want to, I don't want to oversimplify it, but there are, I think common threads for people who, uh, grow up with this in particular, like the, the helper thing mm-hmm. where you're trying to like wanting to take care. I can, to- that totally makes sense to me because you're seeing your parents, um, in your case, as you're growing up in a uh, vulnerable state, um, to say the least, you know? Yeah. Um, but like what else, I guess, like what else, uh, has the Al-Anon experience taught you? Like when you're in fellowship with other people, you allowed to talk about it? I guess it's anonymous, right? Yeah, but I feel comfortable outing myself. But I think we can benefit from these lessons. Uh, I think I had the misconception before I started going to meetings regularly that meetings would be about fixing our loved ones who are addicts or it would be about them or them focus central. And it's not, it's actually about us, the people walking in the doors. And that was hard for me. And I think that's kind of the natural reaction because this is a common denominator with the, the loved ones of addicts that we, we take it on and then their problems become our problems. And that's true to an extent, but the, the whole idea is like, we actually all share these common traits of taking on all of this from other people of trying to fix other people of feeling responsible of, you know, snooping to find substances in, in that was a big step for me that I could no longer do that. You're not going to look for the pills anymore. Never. You used to though. Of course. Okay. Yeah. And I think most people can relate to that. Always looking for the bottles, looking for the pills, pouring the stuff out in the drain. Like we cannot do that. Um, because it's not, it's not our business we can't take it on. They're going to do it anyways. And it's, it's high stakes because we feel like we might be saving someone's life by doing that, but their life is not our responsibility. And so using those tools in my life in general, like even if it's, you know, now not snooping, uh, looking for bad reviews, <laughs> like that's a silly example, but I tried to use those tools in other ways as well. Like I can't control what people think of my book. I can only control writing the best book I can. You, you Do you read your reviews? I do, but I'm not, I'm no longer looking for the bad ones. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I, I did that maybe the first week and You've now gotten mostly good reviews though. Yeah. So that's I, been I'm nice. lucky in that way, but I realized after the first week looking for the low numbers or the low rating or ranking or review, um, was not serving me. And it's also not my business. Do you care? Do you care more about like a New York times book review versus like an Amazon review? Hmm. I mean, yes. (laughs) Yeah. I guess it's going to be seen by more people seen by more people. So yeah, of course. But also I feel grateful that I'm learning very quickly to kind of cancel a review when I read a certain thing in a, in a review. It's almost like being workshopped with, with friends or with a classroom when you hand your story out or your essay. In the beginning, when I started school, I would think, oh, I have to take what everybody has to say about my work and, and try to use it and try to build it into my story, all 12 people. And then you realize that that will never work and it's no longer your piece if you try to do that and you learn to kind of figure out, oh, I trust that person. I trust that person's taste. I trust this one thing this person said because it resonates with me. And if it resonates with you, it's probably something you already know. So I'm trying to apply that to reviews of, you know, 
even if you know i i like this person's taste generally if they say something that resonates i'll take it and i'll try to learn from it but if not like somebody said in a review recently they were disappointed in the book because i didn't face more backlash and turmoil over my sexuality like that's an immediate cancellation i don't have to care what that person thinks about my book yeah because there's a pretty you can pretty quickly tell i think the intentions um or the place someone is writing from. I was just going to say that's somebody like projecting, it seems exactly. like. Exactly. Yeah. And and I have, again, that's not my business. That's them. I feel like whenever someone's critiquing your work, the best notes to me are almost like super self-evident where it's like, oh shit. It's like something really obvious mm-hmm. and you read it and you know, it's like, like, oh my God, how could I have missed that? Mm. Um, I want to, I want to talk to you about, uh, books like I don't, I'm trying to recall, my memory um, is not the greatest. But amid all of the chaos that you were navigating as a as a young person, both in the context of your parents, but also just in the context of your own life, like being a teenage girl and um, getting up to trouble and stuff like that. Like, where did books and writing factor in? I know we talked a little bit about you journaling, but was this something that was with you as like a coping mechanism, kind of? Definitely, or it was always. Yeah. Well, I, I dropped out of it in middle and high school, or mostly high school, when I wanted to be cool. I stopped caring about reading and writing and words. I was too busy trying to, you know, get high and get drunk with my friends. <laughs> but growing up, certainly I always lived in fantasy worlds um, to an extreme. Like I wore a, a red Little Mermaid wig for a year of my life. I once shattered a mirror trying to walk through it to be like Alice in the Looking Glass. But I loved writing these stories, um, the Joni Baloney series that I talk about in the book. That was a whole book series I was trying to write as a kid. What, like Harriet the Spy? Am I re- Harriet the Spy, absolutely. Encyclopedia Brown is still really important to me. I still read them all the time. Do you really? <laughs> yes, all the time. Like, j- just for like the memories? or? Um, actually, I, I read it for... I go back to those basic... You know, Encyclopedia Brown, Harriet the Spy, Boxcar Children. Yeah, I, to... I, I loved all those. Like Harriet the Spy, not as much, but Encyclopedia Brown and the Boxcar Children. Mm-hmm. The, I just remember they used sand to get rid of rust, <laughs> right? In the Boxcar Children? Yeah. Okay. I, when I was a kid, I was like, that's fucking cool. I don't know why that stuck to me. Yeah. But... Well, I go back to them to look at plot mechanics, essentially. Oh. I think. You know, I can read the great Russian novels, and I have, and I love them, but it's too big for me to try to kind of build my own story around that or to replicate anything like that. But when I look at the Boxcar Children or Encyclopedia Brown, within each chapter, there's so much momentum. There's such page-turning quality. There's such beautiful shape um, and mystery to them. So those are usually my opening prompts when I'm writing is I'll try to use a structure from an encyclopedia around mystery, but I plug my own language and story into it. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That's the first time I've heard that in <laughs> almost 600 episodes. I actually wanted to make it a whole book, my encyclopedia Brown kind of my version of it. No, but that makes, I mean, it, it, there's a logic to it, mm-hmm. you know, because these stories, especially the ones that mean so much to us when we're so young and our brains are so soft, that's like the Rosetta stone. It's like imprinted. Mm-hmm. And so to go back and revisit that, I would imagine 
uh, activates some narrative function, like some like as close to the primal narrative function as you have. Sure. So uh, that's a good idea. I yeah. bet there are going to be people listening who try that. I you hope so. Like go to the bookstore and start buying all the books they read when they were like seven. Yes. And just thinking, it's so obvious, a book has to be, at that age, a story has to be so engaging to ha- to hold a child's attention, to care about this mystery. So there's great skill to that. That's why I um, kind of revere it. Like my daughter, we were, we read the uh, entire Harry Potter series to her when she right. was like five or six. Right. She was into it. And I'm yeah. like, these are like 800 page novels. <laughs> she was wrapped. Yeah. That's Amazing. enormous skill. And so I want to learn how to do that by plugging in my own stories into those formulas and not be snobby about it. Of like, well, that's not Anna Karenina. Um, actually it is. It's the same structures. And one is an easier map for me to follow as someone who doesn't see structure clearly. I see sentence and kind of micro moments very cl- clearly, but actual structure and dramatic tension is more difficult for me. Do you have maps that you can like verbalize succinctly is, or is it more intuitive than that? Like, have you broken it down into like some sort of pattern or with the micro sentence work or the structural work, the structural work, like, like the, you go to encyclopedia Brown, you read, I map out every single one in my notebook, the mysteries, like what's the turning point? What are the cues? What's the timing look like? Are we one third in, two thirds in? I also study um, screenwriting books like. and documents. Save the Cat, uh-huh. I really liked. Yeah. Um, just again, getting the very basic breakdowns of drama that you can plug your own work into. Like I think um, snobbery about you know children's books or YA books or screenwriting, whatever it is, is just a sign of an amateur. I think it's really silly because we can learn so much from those books, especially as people working in a literary vein. Yeah. You know, you, yeah, you're great at character. You're great at voice. You're great at sentence. But what do I hear the most often from people? I talk to almost all literary fiction and nonfiction writers and poets. It's like structure plot (laughs) that, that always tends to be the thing that is the least interesting to people who work in this vein. And so it would make sense to try to, strengthen those muscles to maybe dip into like learn it, like save the cat, which mm-hmm. breaks down story structure, like how to, it's kind of like watchmaking. You know, there are certain things sure. that, um, as consumers of narrative, we enjoy, mm-hmm. you know, we enjoy when a story is like un- unfolds in a way where you get X, you know, right at the beginning and Y like a quarter of the way through, you know, I'm oversimplifying, but you know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. And when I was a student in in graduate school for writing, I did have this arrogance that, you know, my language is good enough or this monologue or this stream of consciousness is interesting enough that I don't need plot. And I think that there is this idea that if if the language is good enough, plot is over, plot is dead. And now (laughs) I don't have that arrogance. It's all insecurity. And I can understand that we still need, we still have the responsibility to bring a reader from point A to point B. And that usually happens by plot, um, drama, momentum. And those things weren't present in my early work. And now I really care about trying to to strengthen those muscles because it's not natural to me the same way language is. So I always think as readers and writers, we it's almost 50-50. We either were the micro-sentence people or we see the big plot story. And I always tell my students, 
whatever your natural inclination is, focus on the other thing. Yeah. Cross pollinate. <laughs> yes. You know? Because your natural instincts will rise to that occasion, but focus your energy on the other thing. So that's me trying to study structure. Hmm. So I want to ask you like spiritually, I know you talked a little bit about your Hawaiian heritage, um, and how you have a certain vocabulary around those spiritual traditions, but like with addiction, with grief, with, um, all of these things relatively fresh, like, do you have, uh, that part of your life, uh, defined? Is there something you turn to? Do you have, like, are you, do you go to a synagogue? <laughs> do you do anything in, in that vein? Are you an atheist? What is it? I believe in art. That's my spirituality. And that sounds really hokey, but that's the, the voice and divinity that I've found is the, the feeling of that power when you are hearing someone or speaking to someone through space and time. Like, I think that's incredible. And those are the most sublime moments of my life is when I've been faced with, with just beautiful art that changes me and moves me in some way. It's kind of my belief system. It's my purpose. Um, I don't know what else I believe yet. I still celebrate all the holidays with my family. I do Hanukkah. I do Christmas. I do, I do everything, but my, my faith is in art. What, and what about like afterlife? Do you have any views on that? I don't know yet. I'd like to think, of course, I'd like to think there is something, um, sometimes with dreams and, and maybe other listeners can relate, but sometimes with dreams, with visitation dreams, it can feel so real and so much can be revealed that it doesn't seem possible. And that does make me wonder and give me a little bit of faith. You in, see your in dad something. in dreams? Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah. Yeah. I have many visitation dreams and sometimes he's, you know, giving me information that I, that has been revealed later and it seems impossible. Like how, how could that have happened? And maybe it is the subconscious at work. Maybe it is something I, I knew all along, but sometimes it really doesn't feel like that. It does feel like something greater than that. Yeah. So I won't, I won't rule it out, but I don't know. I, th I think that's probably yeah. a healthy view. Yeah. And I like not knowing. I mean, how can you, I mean, I, I guess some people have such, I've had, I've, I just talked to Pam Houston. She's like, I've seen ghosts and like, <laughs> seems like a totally rational actor. You know, you hear people tell these stories and it's like, who am I to argue? So I guess if it's like right there in your face, to, you know, that that's one thing, but otherwise, um, you have to kind of remain agnostic, I guess. Mm -hmm. And on the note of, of art, I also really believe in our human ability to to create narrative and story through symbols, through signs, through dreams. And I think that's really beautiful that we can create spirituality through, you know, recognizing patterns in the world, if that makes any sense. Well, it's taking all of this chaos and then putting it down in some order, mm -hmm. like making a beauty out of it, making a meaning out of it. Yeah. And I think that, you know, if writing a beautiful book and putting it out into the world and however many people, whether it's five people or it's 5 million people who have like a moment of therapy or communion with it, like, why can't that be spiritual? It is. <laughs> it to is. Me. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that's just like, if that's not, then what is, mm -hmm. um, so kudos to you for doing that. Thank you. You know, it's, it's a big success and like just to, to do what I was just talking about, to take difficult stuff and render it so well. 
Thank you. That's hard work. And now you are teaching mm-hmm. at Sarah Lawrence. Yes. You're working with, were you still working with people in like uh, halfway houses and stuff? I'm going to go back in the fall. You I'm are. off everything right now because of the tour, but right. I'll, also be go- I'll also be going back to Sarah Lawrence in the fall. Can I ask you a question about mm-hmm. homeless people since you work with them sure. uh, intimately? Because mm-hmm. Los Angeles, we have a terrible homeless population or, mm-hmm. you know, problem. And, uh, it's, it's vexing to know what to do. You know, some people are in such rough shape, like they're so wasted or they're so mentally ill and discombobulated. You know, you walk past and it's just like, it's like a little mini trauma every time. Cause, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, you're just like, Oh my God, the human suffering. And then you're like, Oh, I should stop. And you're in your car and the light changes and you drive on. And it's just like, or you walk past, you know? Yeah. And I just find myself thinking like, how do we, like, A, was it always this bad? It's gotten worse. Mm-hmm. Something's gone sideways in this country. Like we didn't, I don't know. It could not have always been like this. And what's, what's the answer? Like, how do we make this better? Do you I, have feelings? I wish I had an answer. I think there is no one answer. I think doing the work I do, teaching in shelters, um, I don't even like using the word teaching. Sometimes I call myself a facilitator, but I think my job is really just saying there's value to what you have to say and to your stories and to your histories and your bodies and just encouraging that. Um, that's, that's the biggest job I can do, but there is, there is no answer. Not everyone wants to be sober. Not everyone wants to be in a shelter. Not everyone wants to go back to work. There are so many deep systemic issues, of course, um, that it would, it would be its own episode or a series to talk about that. But I think we can just help with our own skill sets in the ways that we can. And for me, it's through words. And I also had a photography class with, with my students. I say that in, in air quotes where I just gave them, you know, disposable cameras and said like, let's see the world, how you see the world. And then we had this beautiful gallery show for everybody and they felt so proud of their art. And it's, again, it's not about teaching them to make art. It's just allowing them to have, you know, a gallery show (laughs) yeah, and permission and encouragement to say, you know, I want to see this. We want to see the world the way you see the world. Or, you know, if you see someone on the street to just acknowledge them and if they want to talk, sometimes talk, if you have time. Um, what about money? Cause I will give homeless people money, especially the ones in my neighborhood who I see a lot. Mm-hmm. I sort of adopt my local homeless because I'm like, all right, well, if yeah. I'm going to see over and I, I always ask them their name. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great gesture. Yeah. Cause it's like, okay, Elijah, mm-hmm. like you're out here all the time. Like we might as well know one another Yeah. <laughs> instead of me just like walking past. And then there's a guy last night who I see all the time. He, he didn't, he never says anything, but he like motion. I don't know if he's mute or, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like, I don't know if he can talk, mm-hmm. but, uh, he holds his hand out and I'm always like, I make eye contact, but it's like. I've had people tell me in the past, like, well, don't give them money, you know, cause they'll just go buy booze or, you know, I guess there's some logic to that. You don't want to like perpetuate mm-hmm. their self-destruction, but it's I'm, tough. It's, yeah, tough. it's you, really tough. Is there like a, a is there a, a prevailing dogma within the community of like homeless shelters and facilities that work with people about how to handle that? I can say for me, it's funny. One of the first rules when I started working at a homeless shelter was don't go out and recruit people. And I thought that was such a ridiculous rule. I'm like, why am I going to go out and try to 
you know, bring people into the shelter. And then I very quickly learned that that was the only thing I wanted to do. (laughs) And I no longer work at that shelter. So now I can. And now if I'm having a conversation with someone and they're asking me for money, I'll usually learn about, you know, their circumstance. Maybe they're a vet, maybe they have children. And I tried to understand my homeless network in New York city. And then I can recommend different places for resources for them. Hmm. You know, I can say, go to the dough fund if you want to get clean and we'll put you, we'll put you to work. You'll get a salary. We'll get a bank account together. We'll get employment together and to see if they're actually interested in that. And sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not, but instead of just passing them something, I usually try to have a conversation because sometimes they just don't know. And they just need someone to say, here's where you can go. If you have kids, here's where you can go. That has a program for vets. Um, well, it's like your friend who found you a therapist. Yeah. These people are living in like a box in the street or in a, yeah, like how a, will they know? How will they know? How are they going to know? <laughs> so yeah, well, kudos to you for doing that work. Thank you. And then you're also writing a novel mm-hmm. for the past seven years, which I think is great. That <laughs> makes different versions. <laughs> how far along are you? Do you know, like, do you have a sense of having a handle on in it? In some ways I'm finished and in some ways I don't have a single chapter. Is the book up? Like, is it sold or is it going to go? No, to, okay. no, no, no. I will need more years at work on this book. Do you have more memoir in you? Or are you kind of done with that for a while? I do. There will be part two, oh, but really? novel first. Part two. Can you give us any hints? Like what part two will cover? Um, things that have happened since. Okay. Yes. It's not a bad title. Just FYI, <laughs> <laughs> but I won't hold you to it. It's great to meet you. I know you're in like super busy. You've been traveling and there's a weariness that settles in, um, when you're doing a lot of stops and everything, but you were great. It was great to meet you and congratulations on the book. I'm glad we got that spotlighted in the book club. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right. There you go, guys. That is T. Kira Madden. Her memoir is called Long Live the Tribe of Fatherless Girls. It is available now from Bloomsbury. Go get your copy. If you would like to follow uh, T. Kira Madden on Twitter, her handle over there is at TK Madden. And her website is tkiramadden.com. Long live the tribe of fatherless girls out there now. Go get it. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the uh, theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to write to me, my email address is letters at otherppl.com. If you would like to join the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, Check that out at thenervousbreakdown.com. Just click on Book Club up there in the menu. This podcast has its own official app. Did you know that? The Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get the app. Okay, I think that's it. I gotta go. I got got stuff to do. I gotta prepare. I'm late.